Ladies and gentlemen, I now officially, finally have a solid top five uh, shows that I've been to music-wise and I'm ready to pass it on to you and give you my experiences. So, in the words of Public Enemies, Chuck D, bring the noise. Fifth Amendment Podcast Network. I am Charlie Taylor, and this is what's good. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. I hope you've all had a good week. So, what about my week? <laughs> so, what about my week, ladies and gentlemen? I tell you, it's been it's been a, it's been an interesting week. Um, I'll get into it more specifically uh, when we talk about the music segment because that's kind of the highlight of the week. But past that past the highlight it's been okay I've been I've been feeling productive I think I've been feeling weirdly productive and uh, positive in a way not all the time but in a way but it's, uh, it's good to feel like that again I haven't felt like I haven't felt that positivity that that I haven't had that in a while it's been a few weeks it's been at least a few weeks since I've had that feeling so it's um it's good it's refreshing and uh yeah I'm I'm, I'm I'm getting, I'm getting back to what's the word? Full power, I guess. If you wanna, <laughs> if you wanna, if you wanna make it really mechanical. But anyway, yeah. So um, it's been, it's been, a, it's been an interesting week. Uh, I have a really stacked docket for for the show today. Uh, so we might make it to an hour. We might make it over an hour. We might make it under an hour. We, I just don't know what's going to happen here. I don't know how long I'm going to go into get into these particular topics. So, with that said, might as well get into it. Formalities of, of course. Before we begin, we have the email, we have the Twitter, we have the Facebook, and we have the IG coming soon. Also, in Fifth Element Podcast Network news, uh, podcast number three is uh, in its official beta stage we have a we have one beta episode uh, ready to go so if you want to become a beta tester in any way um if you want well in any way by which i mean listen to the (laughs) to the beta episodes and give uh, qualitative feedback then let me know hit me up on any of the socials that i've just uh, just prescribed to you or just look up in the description uh, below wherever you listen and uh yeah that's pretty that's pretty much where we're at uh, if you want to know what the show's about you know for a little logline a little tease of what it is uh, to actually see if you're interested or not <clears throat> it's basically a music journalism podcast um so so basically a rotating cast actually doesn't include me this time <laughs> so i'm just on a uh, on a production and uh, editing basis uh, so yes yeah, so a music journalism podcast and also uh, talking about uh, Usually writing, usually usually music writing, music journalism, as you know. But they also are going to cover videos as well if they if it uh, garners any interest. Uh, but yeah, they basically it's kind of like this show, kind of like what's good in a way, but uh, more roundtable discussion and uh, a, a breadth of uh, variety as it pertains to music journalism, music news, and uh, yeah, just all that kind of and all that good stuff. So if you're into music journalism, uh, video essays maybe. Uh, music in general, obviously, and obviously writing as well. Then be sure to hit me up, and uh, if you want to listen, uh, hit me up. Hit me up, as I said, and uh, we sh- and I'll give that link to you. And you know, providing you give 
qualitative feedback because there's no point in giving it to you and then I hear nothing from you. There's no, there's no point in that, is there? Who does that help, you know? So, but with, that, with that said, we shall get into this particular show of What's Good. It's going to be a... It's going to be an interesting one, so uh, <laughs> no film and TV uh, this week, I've been a bit heavy on that uh, the past few weeks, so I thought I'd give that a break, um, I don't do that with actual thought, I just, it just so happens I have, uh, in this particular case, uh, two life topics, one sport and obviously one music, and uh, yeah, so let's get into the show, let's not waste any time, because I've said it like four times, <laughs> drop the beat, and let's get into the show. In a week where Nicki Minaj retires from music, which, um, I mean, I guess. <laughs> I don't really have any particular feelings towards it. I'm not really, you know, I haven't been a fan of Nicki Minaj in years. So I haven't really actively listened to Nicki Minaj in years, so it's not really, uh, doesn't, there's no skin off my nose. But uh, it's the, the, the concept of artists retiring is a bit weird to me. Um, you're either you're either doing your job or you're either doing your art or you're not. You know what I mean? It's not really a matter of retirement in the in the in the you know the logical sense, the dictionary definition sense. You know, you can't ret- do you retire from art? Do you get hired to do to do art? You know what I mean? It's it's really weird. So uh, I don't know. It's, it's it's an odd concept when it comes to musicians and you know directors and writers, whatever. But yeah, uh, to say that she's retired from music. I mean, Ed Sheeran said that. A year or two ago so and now he's obviously dropped an album like a month ago so you know what is retirement for for musicians and for artists so i, I don't really know but good luck to Nicki minaj if she if she uh, does what she says and retires from music and never makes music again which i highly doubt and starts a family which uh well was that's, that's, that's her business Kasta Semenya joins a South African football team uh, after refusing to abide by IWF rules. So we have the World Championships, World, World Athletics Championships in Doha in a few weeks. I'm so excited for that, so ready for that. And uh, it won't have Kasta Semenya as part of it, uh, which is completely unfortunate because she is the most dominant uh, uh, runner over 800 meters and also 1500 meters in, uh, as well. And basically it's just, uh, just going to be a... Some people might add the mental asterisk of Castus anywhere there, so you know, it doesn't really, not really, ca- not I won't, I won't say it doesn't count, but you know it could have been much much more different if she was there. You know what I'm saying? So uh, that's just that's just how it goes. But um, big up big up to Castus and not you know not abiding by the rule uh, by IWF's stupid rules um, and illogical rules and uh, doing her own things, which is good. So uh, all the best to her. Australia wins the Ashes, the Ashes, can I say that right, with uh, one test remaining, I have I have no response to that, <laughs> it's just it's just news, it's just a news piece, I don't have to have a response to that, do you? I don't watch cricket, I've, I haven't watched cricket in, I don't know, so many years, it's been a long while, uh, a man was shot in broad daylight in London Borough of Lewisham, which I just, I mean, I just wanted to shout out to be honest, because that's just mad to think about. Uh, the fact that somebody got shot, not even, well, the fact that somebody got shot in, in the UK is obviously a bit, you know, it's definitely a rarity, uh, you know, we see America obviously with the mass shooting pretty much every day, and then it comes to the UK where there's, there's practically no shootings at all, but the fact that someone not just got shot, but shot in broad daylight, just in, you know, in just the middle of the day is crazy to think about, so uh, uh, we'll, we'll see, we'll see how that goes and keep a pulse on that. 
Parliament has been prorogued again, and Speaker John Burko intends to step down by October 31st or sooner. Um, yeah, I mean, we talked about this last week, and I told you, I, I did tell you guys, it's, it's, it's fluid, and this, this shit ain't over. It's, no, it's, it's not going to be over until, uh, I don't know, until until something actually happens and all these years and stuff still hasn't happened in the grand scheme of things let's be real so uh, we we shall see how that goes of course and keep you abreast uh apple revealed their iphone 11 apple tv plus among others uh i'm i think i saw well the iphones look ugly i'm just gonna be real with you they look ugly they have the notch still it's like two years outdated from a hardware standpoint uh they have um excuse me those three cameras are just Ugh, it's just such an eyesore to look at. It just doesn't. It just doesn't work. It do, it doesn't look good at all. It just it looks grim. I don't know why you would buy an iPhone 11 at this point. You might as well just if you're gonna buy an iPhone, buy an iPhone 10s or whatever. Just just buy a previous generation because, I mean, it, it, that that shit just looks ugly. And you know, software wise, not much has changed. Uh, not much has changed. And yeah, so if you're gonna if you're gonna get an iPhone, get either previous generation or wait till next year where some stuff actually might happen and uh, you know actually look different in a in a good way not not just uh, some fugly looking camera uh you know apple tv obviously you've talked about the subscription wars and obviously that's a addition to that Uh, apparently it's going to be five dollars a month if i'm correct uh, in the the u.s so that is obviously dramatically less than uh well not dramatically less but less than disney plus and also netflix and uh, roku hulu whatever uh so yeah man that's a that's a that's a that's a power move that's a power move by apple by apple there so uh, we'll see how that goes and also lastly the archbishop of canterbury goes to india and apologizes for the amritsar massacre now he did say in the video uh, in the video that I, uh, that I watched that he doesn't uh, that he isn't part of the uk government and he he is then you know in the name of christ and all, and all that so you know the fact that the Archbishop of Canterbury can do this, and the government can't even acknowledge it, just says it all, doesn't it? It just it doesn't make it doesn't make sense. It's it really it, it's it's so illogical how we're just not, you know, taking account of all this crap. And actually, that uh, leads into one of uh, the two life topics, and they're both based in Africa. Um, so I'll start with this one because this is kind of. I mean, the first one that came up to me, and we're talking about Robert Mugabe, who obviously was the first, uh, I think, I think it's Prime Minister of Zimbabwe, uh, and obviously he died a few days, uh, about a week ago, and I just saw this, um, I just saw this article, and I found it very interesting. Now, I just want to say, just straight out, right, that I'm not really the most educated when it comes to the with the with the whole story of Robin Mugabe I know you know clippings of that and you will get clippings here from this particular article that I'm about to read um but there is there is a lot to there's a lot to take in when it comes to not just to Robin Mugabe but also just uh politics in Africa and uh and uh, just uh I guess views and ideologies as well. So just a just a this uh, just a little disclaimer on that. So this is called uh, "I Met Robert Mugabe in the Late 1970s." What he told me still haunts me. This is by Lawrence Pintek, and this is written uh, via Vox. So let's get into it. We are not going to make the same mistake the rest of Black Africa has made. 
Robert Mugabe told me in the late 1970s in an interview for Newsweek, we are going to learn from their mistakes. We met in Mozambique, the headquarters for his guerrilla army, which was then locked in a seemingly interminable war against a white minority regime in Rhodesia. Rhodesia being the former name of of Zimbabwe that we know now, uh, controlled by British rule and basically white people. Uh, The conflict would claim an estimated 20,000 lives, most of them black nationalist guerrillas and uh, African civilians, and was marked by terrible atrocities on both sides. Tragically, Mugabe, who died Thursday, aged 95, would make good on his promise to learn from the mistakes of fellow African leaders, turning into an art form the corruption and brutality that had plagued African nations since the first country in sub-Saharan Africa won its independence in 1957. One statistic sums up what Robert Mugabe did for his people. At independence in, 19, in 1980, the average life expectancy for a Zimbabwean was about 60 years old. By 2006, that had dropped to 37 for men and 34 for women, the shortest in the world. Here's what else you need to know about Robert Mugabe and the complicated legacy he leaves behind. Vote for the cock, which is the subtitle of this particular part. Uh, from the 1880s, when the British first arrived until the rebellious British colony of Rhodesia, a transition to majority rule when Mugabe took power in 1980, the country was ruled by whites, for whites. The majority black African population was nothing more than hired help. Mugabe is a soft-spoken former teacher and self-styled Marxist-Leninist revolutionary who quoted Chairman Mao, led one of the two guerrilla armies that fought against the white minority regime of Ian Smith and the short-lived black African government of Bishop Abel Muzorewa, right, Muzorewa, it's a bit of a handful, isn't it, uh, which never won uh, international recognition. Mugabe began his struggle against Rhodesia's white colonial government in the late 1950s, establishing an opposition party with other black leaders in 1960. He and several colleagues were jailed a few years later when Chinese-trained militants, loyal to them, began to launch attacks against government forces. Mugabe eventually went into exile in neighbouring Mozambique, where, from where his ZANU militants launched a full-scale war against the white regime, while an allied guerrilla army led by Joshua Nkomo carried out attacks from their base in Zambia on Rhodesia's western border. The war would eventually force the white government to accede to a British-negotiated settlement, bringing about independence in April 1980. Mugabe and his guerrilla rival Joshua Nkomo ran for office and eventually formed a coalition government. Vote for the cock. That was the slogan of Mugabe's uh, Zimbabwe African National Union, or ZANU, uh, party in the campaign that brought him to power. It was a reference to his party's logo, the rooster, a symbol of strength to the poorly educated African populace. But it was tribalism, not clever campaign uh, tricks that brought Mugabe to power and uh, and through which he ruled. Within two years of taking office, Mugabe, a member of the majority Shona tribe, would turn on his ally during the war. Nkomo, whose member, whose guerrilla army was largely made up of members of the Ndebele tribe, Nkomo was purged from the cabinet and Mugabe unleashed his forces in a pogrom that effectively wiped out Nkomo's armed followers, uh, left as many as 20,000 of Nkomo's fellow tribesmen dead and consolidated Mugabe's grip on power. For Zimbabweans who were not part of the ruling elite, the long national nightmare was just the beginning. Uh, As white farmers were driven from their lands, political opponents were jailed or murdered, and the media was cowed. 
Mugabe presided over the complete and total collapse of the nation. Starvation, disease and brutality were the legacies of Mugabe's one-man rule. The country's uh, currency collapsed and was jettisoned. Hospitals ran out of medicine. Tuberculosis, HIV, malaria and other diseases spread like wildfire. Cholera fa uh, fatality rates were 10 times the global norm. International donors were driven away by rampant corruption and inefficiency. A quarter of the population fled the country. And despite it all, Mugabe was feted in Africa's halls of power. He was elected president of the Southern Africa Development Community, uh, Community, chairman of the African Union, and in the ultimate hypocrisy, named as World Health Organization Goodwill Ambassador. Brilliant. To most fellow African heads of state, he was a revolutionary who drove the last vestiges of colonialism from the continent. Nothing else, it seemed, mattered. Another subtitle, Mugabe is dead, Zimbabwe suffering endures. Ultimately, the man who said, only God who appointed me will remove me, was forced out by the military in 2017. Not because he was a vicious dictator, but because as the ailing and infirm leader ceded day-to-day -day power to his ambitious young wife, she had alienated his cronies. As one of the generals, as one of the generals who fought under him in the Liberation War put it, as he became old, he surrendered his court to a gang of thieves around his wife, unquote. Unlike most ousted dictators, though, who tend to live out their lives in exile, if they're lucky enough to survive the ousting, Mugabe lived out the remainder of his life in the gilded luxury of his mansion in the Zimbabwe, Zimbabwean capital, Harare. But for ordinary Zimbabweans, little changed. Mugabe was replaced by Emerson Mnangagwa, a uh, re fellow revolutionary forged in Mugabe's image. I hope I said that right. Today, millions uh, millions are again on the brink of starvation. The economy is once again in freefall. Inflation is running at 175%. Fuel prices have increased almost 500% since the beginning of the year. There are widespread shortages of electricity and water, and the national cell phone company is about to collapse. The army has been the army has been sent in to deal with those who protest, leaving more than a dozen dead. Mugabe told me back in 1978 that he wasn't going to make Africa, going to make the same mistake the rest of Black Africa has made. At the time, I thought he meant he wanted to do better by his people. But I was young then. Perhaps I was just naive. Um, for those who want to know who Lawrence Pintak is, he's a journalism professor at Washington State University and non-resident fellow at the Mid Middle East Institute. Um, so yeah, I think this is kind of a commentary, uh, well, the the overriding thing about, you know, Mugabe and how people cover politicians and people from foreign, foreign countries, um, is always a, there's always a leaning towards either the, the, the bad side or the good side. Now, there is also there was always a balance that is, needs to be that needs to be taken as it pertains to you know just um, unbiased journalism I guess, and it's true it's 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 true here. Let's just say let's just say right here that there is there's plenty more bad than good. <laughs> you know what I mean let's let's be real. There's plenty more bad here as it pertains to what Robert Mugabe did during his political career in life than good. You know you can. While we can also, while we talk about the um, all the bad stuff, also has to be mentioned the fact that Zimbabwe wouldn't be literally Zimbabwe without Robin Mugabe, and that's 
you know, worth mentioning. But on the flip side, it is also worth mentioning that Zimbabwe's literal life expectancy as people has nearly halved in the time that Robert Mugabe has been uh, been the leader of that country. So it's 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 all it's all uh, it's a fascinating um, thing to think about as it pertains to how um, how leaders lead. Um, that that in that quote is uh, very interesting, and I think it's kind of gone over my head because I can't really, <laughs> I can't really understand. I can't fully understand the quote that was given there, saying that I won't make the same mistakes. But he has, didn't he? Did he not? I'm not really. Sh- I'm not really sure. I think that the, I, I know the quote has gone totally above my head there. So if you wanna, if anyone wants to break that down for me, please do. But um, yeah, I think this is a. I wanted to talk about it simply from a just an informational standpoint. I find it kind of a fascinating uh, cautionary tale in how um, Africa has been not just um, you know we, we we obviously talk about you know colonialism and the history of that, and while that's all fact and you all should get into that from an educational standpoint, you all should read into that, especially what Britain and the Dutch and the French and the Spanish have done. In 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 those in those uh, particular hundred, uh, centuries, it also is worth looking at uh, how you know African leaders who are from Africa and of that of, uh, and are of that soil treat their people. It's very worrying, and you wonder. It's always worth wondering what is the answer there. You know, do you uh, from from a from a person who, you know, is a UK citizen, born in Britain and all this, um, would I want Britain to, you know, quote-unquote intervene like they've done with many other countries in Africa and the Middle East? No. No, because it's just clear that that shit don't work. Um, And also, you know, look at where we are right now. (laughs) Our parliament ain't even open. You know, it's, uh, it's just worth, it's just always worth staying in that uh, even though countries like Zimbabwe are plummeting literally from an economic and from a medical standpoint and many other standpoints, you know, we still, we, 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 we're going through all this crap right now trying to leave the EU and, you know, and it's all just, and I guess I, I said it before and I say, it, I say it again, a futile exercise, a really futile exercise. And if you want to talk about America, well, let's not talk about America, shall we? There's just, no, there's no point. We know what's up. So, it is always, um, it is always interesting looking at it from the broadest of lens of how um, Africa has been uh, not just abused by their own, uh, by their own politicians, uh, but also obviously by other foreign, quote-unquote, powers. Well, it's not quite unquote, it's factual powers. And, um, yeah, so I just wanted to highlight that and also highlight just the story of Robert Mugabe because it's actually just, again, just mad fascinating how he could, how you can go from, you know, uh, guerrilla warfare and, and, you know, fighting for independence and then you just spend the rest of your life just killing your people, basically, and making them suffer. It doesn't... 
it's a it's a mindset that I can't really fathom. And you know, let's be real. Why would you want to fathom that? So we take a little break from Africa for a bit. For a bit, <laughs> it's, it's literally for one segment. Uh, and uh, let's get into sport. So I wanted to obviously the U.S. Open has been and gone, and that's officially over. But I wanted to talk about this particular side of tennis, and um, I just uh, I just found it really. I, I've always wondered. I've always asked this question to myself, uh, but I've never really actually you know looked into it. So I just thought. Well, since I saw the question, let's get into it for once. <laughs> so this is uh, by William C. Roden of The Undefeated, and it's called Where Are the Black Men in Tennis? Uh, Rafael Nadal earned his 19th Grand Slam title in his fourth US Open on Sunday in a gripping final match. Nadal held off young Daniel Medvedev to close out the final Grand Slam event this season. I watched the exhilarating match on sun- uh, match Sunday and wondered what has happened to professional tennis in the United States. More pe- specifically, where are the black men in tennis? We ask this question every year during the US Open. For the casual US tennis fan, this is when tennis comes on our radar screen. Before the NFL season kicks in, the NBA gears up. In fact, that's the answer to the question, where are the black male tennis players? Uh, The great young black athlete is playing college football on Saturdays, NFL football on Sundays, and basketball during the winter. The rest are being snatched up by soccer or by baseball. Those sports have developed highly efficient systems for identifying and refining talent from the youth level to the pros. The tennis industry in this country, barricaded for so long in country club ivory towers, is now realising that making US tennis uh, great again means inclusion and diversity. Fancy that. While women of colour and black women in particular are surging in tennis, there is barely a glimmer of hope that African-American men will rise to exist at the superstar level. Arthur Ashe was the last black American to win a Grand Slam title. That was in 1975. Andy Roddick was the last American man to win a Grand Slam title, which was in 2003. Men's tennis in the United States has been in a downward cycle since the sport's recent heyday, when Michael Chang, Andre Agassi, Pete Sampras and James Blake competed. Francis Tiafo uh, was touted as the next great player from the US, but he simply has not had the results. Tiafo reached the quarterfinals of the Australian Open this year, but was eliminated in the second round of this year's US Open. Quote, I would love to say that it's a cyclical thing, but this is a pretty long cycle, said Chris Widmeyer, Managing Director of Corporate Communications for the US Tennis Association. How can tennis tap into other sports pipelines and get young talent? The one thing tennis has going for it as it tries to tap into the football pipeline, for example, is that football is so brutal uh, and has been exposed for its inescapable brutality. Our players don't get concussions, USTA President Patrick uh, Galbraith told me last week. No, they don't. But aspiring young football players who make it do receive the prestige of being NFL players. Beyond that, tennis for aspiring young black men can be isolating. You'll always be one of the black face. You'll be one black face. Uh, you'll always be one black face of, among thousands, compared with the basketball and football pipelines that are heavily populated with other African Americans on the conveyor belt. Donald Young, who was once the uh, young black hope of tennis, once spoke to me with me about the isolating culture of tennis. It's tough, he said. You play a sport and don't see a lot of yourself in there, out there. It's hard. You play other sports, you can relate, it's difficult. Uh, even the music you like. You look at sports like basketball and everything's pretty similar. 
The players all come from similar backgrounds, you kind of relate and talk. Women have found that there is definitely strength in numbers and in role models, thanks to Venus and Serena Williams. Women's tennis in general, and especially in the US, is deep and rich. The women are phenomenal, the children are growing, Galbraith said, referring to players such as Coco Goff, 15, and Keita Minnelli, 17. Then you have the adults, you have Sloane Stevens and Madison Keys uh, and that group. Then you have the grandparents, Serena and Venus. You have three generations of players out there all being successful and they're all pushing each other. It's forcing Venus and Serena to stay young. Granted, the dominance of women's, uh, women in US tennis speaks to their limited opportunities to make a living as a professional athlete. The only real place for women to make substantial sums of money is in tennis, golf to a lesser extent. In soccer, US women are suing their federation for equal pay with the men. The WNBA is woefully behind the NBA. There is no professional football to speak of for women. On the men's side, there are so many more options, Galbraith says. It's weird surname that is Galbraith. Uh, they can't be. They can be a pro footballer, basketball player, pro baseball player. Uh, tennis is down the line for men. For women, it's a high priority. Galbraith added that the sport must attract a much larger and more diverse pool of male players. If we had five times the amount of kids playing tennis, our problems would be solved. Galbraith said. It's a total numbers game because for every 10,000 kids you have playing, a certain percentage are going to play D1 tennis. A certain percent are going to play pro. If we can get, ju- if we can just get more kids playing the game, you're going to speed that up. But how? Tennis is a great sport and one that can provide college scholarships and substantial living for a long period of time. How can a sport pull potential athletic uh, talent away at an early age, especially from the clutches of football and basketball? One way would be to reduce the cost of travel by placing several USTA training centers around the country rather than having elite players come to Florida. Young fo- uh, youth football is everywhere. Youth basketball is everywhere. Affordable USTA-sponsored youth, uh, youth tennis centers need to be everywhere. That is, if the sport is really serious about going wide and going deep. We need to crack that code, Widmeyer said, referring to finding new ways of attracting talent. I don't have the answers. I know we need to see some younger players get into the second week of Grand Slams and start proving themselves like the American women have. We need tennis to attract better athletes in bigger numbers. Making US tennis great again means uh, escalating inclusion, tearing down barriers, bringing more people into the sport. We need tennis... Uh, to look like America, Widmeyer said. When tennis truly looks like America, we're going to be back as the powerhouse uh, we should be. Um, so yeah, that's um, that's kind of a interesting way of uh, linking, actually, especially when it comes to obviously women's tennis. Because if you look at um, if you look at like uh, obviously like uh, stuff like Forbes Rich List, because uh, obviously they do a yearly list of uh, of how much money athletes get uh, every year. The only women that are usually on it are tennis are tennis players. You know, track athletes don't get the money. Swimmers don't get the money. Basketball female basketball players have to go to Russia to get actual money. That's that's silly to think about. Uh, and obviously the U.S. Uh, women's uh, uh, football team, well soccer team, uh, obviously that's been well documented in the past few months. So. And there is there is truly no avenue if you really want to make the millions the actual proper millions. Um, the rest of them make tens of tens of thousands at best, uh, hundred thousands if you're really good. Um, tennis is tennis and and golf are pretty much the only places where you can actually uh, get some, you know, proper actual sports money uh, that we that we know and uh, that we know and um, 
I don't really know what the word is, appreciate, I guess, or, or acknowledge, let's say that. Um, I, I think the, I think the, I think the potential is obviously always there, um, and it's, it's always a matter of, you know, it's always a matter of historical context, it's always a matter of, uh, what's the word, accessibility, it's most of the time, 90% of the time is really up to accessibility, you know, um, I, there is a, te- there, near me there's a tennis court, uh, a few a few miles down the road, there's a there's a uh, there's a, I I used to have like I personally used to have like uh, tennis classes when I was younger. I tried a lot of sports uh, personally. Um, it wasn't for me. <laughs> it, just, it just wasn't for me. I didn't ha- I I just didn't have the stamina. Like the stamina for, for tennis is absurd. The, the amount of stamina you require. But um, yeah, I just, I just, I just couldn't really personally do it. But um, yeah, but I feel like for most places in England I think there are avenues to go down there are there are there is accessibility there all you need really is a racket and some shoes uh, and obviously you know some sort of kit and you're ready to go you know um, for 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 stuff like baseball I feel like that's a that's just a I wouldn't say just as hard in terms of American children um it's, it's, it's easy to it's easy to get them in young, but that requires a lot more. You need like a whole baseball pitch, and uh, you know you need, you need all the gear to towards that. And if the community doesn't allow that, then you're pretty much screwed. You might as well just play American football or basketball. American football and basketball are the two main ones. Let's uh, let's be real about that. Uh, but yeah, tennis is a. I do. I personally do enjoy tennis. I. I enjoy watching it. I always find it very fun to watch. I actually sometimes prefer watching uh, women to men because sometimes men is is just so lopsided. There's just no point. Um, but uh, the women's game is just so much more competitive. And uh, in recent years, it's been way more competitive, way more competitive. Looking at the men, not even from an American standpoint, right? Just taking the American side out of it. Just watching, you know, just Federer, Nadal, Djokovic. And then one person in that potluck. <laughs> it's literally, that's literally all it is most of the time. And it's, it does it does get a bit stale. It really does get stale. The point of sport and the point of that entertainment side of it is the storylines. And to have, and you know, you know, goat status is always something worth talking about. But even that gets stale. You know, uh, when Serena lost uh, the final to Bianca Andreescu uh, in the US Open... The the articles are, everyone has to do an article on Serena now after after a major. It's it's either Serena's the goat and you can't say and you we can't say anything about that now. Um, well, we can't dispute it now. Or uh, Serena needs to do this to get back on track. It's just like it's it's like how about just just not writing anything at all? She lost. She took an L. Like, it's, it's, you know. Tennis players take L's. I don't see. I didn't. I didn't see a Roger Federer think piece when he lost. I didn't see that. I, I just didn't really see that. So, when it comes to TFO talking about uh, obviously the isolation side of it, I can really understand that. Uh, I can really. I can really. I can really see that because uh, apart from him and Donald Young I, and Gail Monfils, uh, Nick Kyrgios, uh, Joe Wilford Songa, that's it. I can't. I can't really think of any others. Uh, oh wait, there is that. Um, 
there is that Canadian dude. I forgot his name. It's it's really it's French. Uh, it's, it's it's Canadian French, but yeah, he, there's him as well. So yeah, there's like what six six black tennis players. Yeah, it's not it, chief. It really isn't chief. And uh, yeah, so as it pertains to American tennis, I I think the logical option is just make it more accessible. If they really are, if they really want to, you know, put literally put the money where their mouth is. That's a jewel is put your money where your mouth is. So if they want to do that, they can go do that. And in a few years, uh, they will begin to show fruit. Not everybody can uh, pitch a flight, uh, can buy a flight to Florida. And if Family Guy has told me any different, why the hell would you want to go to Florida? So we move on to our second life topic of the day, of the episode, and is we are still in Africa. As I said, we are going to South Africa for this one. And this was actually uh, given to me by my pops, so shout out to him. Um, he usually gives me these uh, these little tidbits and little factoids about Africa and uh, just... Um, you know, just 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 some good general knowledge that isn't covered, you know, in the in the news or um, or, or social media. Uh, so this is called, and this is harrowing to be think about actually. Uh, so this is called ex mercenary claims South African groups tried to spread AIDS. Uh, this is by Emma Graham Harrison and also involves Andreas Roxen and Mads Bruger, who uh, did a, a basically a documentary covering uh, all this and was actually posted. Uh, January 27th this year so I'm really late on this one but uh, it's, it's still I think worth talking about from a just an overall standpoint so let's get into it. A South Africa based mercenary group has been accused by one of its former members of trying to intentionally spread AIDS in southern Africa in the 1980s uh, and 1990s. The claims are made by Alexander Jones in a documentary that premieres this weekend at the Sundance Film Festival he says he spent years as an intelligence officer with the South African Institute for Maritime Research, or SAIMR, S-A-I-M-R, SAIMR, I'll say SAIMR, uh, three decades ago when it was masterminding coups and other violence across Africa. The film also explores the unexplained murder of a young SAIMR uh, recruit in 1990 whose family believed was killed because, uh, yeah, whose family believed was killed because of her work on an AIDS-related project run uh, by the group in South Africa and Mozambique. Uh, and it also claims the group's then-leader had a racist apocalyptic session with HIV and AIDS. Keith Maxwell wrote about a plague he hoped would decimate black populations, cement white rule, and bring back conservative religious mores, uh, according to papers collected by the filmmakers. Maxwell had no medical qualifications, but ran clinics in poor, mostly black areas around Johannesburg, while claiming to be a doctor. That gave him the opportunity for sinister experimentation. Jones says in the film Cold Case Hammarskjöld, I, th- I hope I said that right, uh, filmmakers were investigating Simon because it claimed responsibility for the mysterious 1961 plane crash that killed Dag Hammarskjöld, uh, the then uh, UN Secretary General. Quote, what's easier, what, what easier way to get a guinea pig than when you live in an apartheid system, Jones said in the film. Black people have got no rights. They need medical treatment. There's white philanthropists coming in and saying, you know, I'll open up these clinics and I'll treat you. And the meantime, uh, and meantime, he is actually working, uh, actually the wolf in sheep's clothing. 
assign advertising uh, Dr. Taylor Maxwell, doctor, uh, still hangs from the side of an office in Poutfontaine, when... Uh, where locals res- uh, remember a respected man with a virtual monopoly on the area's healthcare. He offered strange me- uh, treatments, including putting patients through tubes, which he said allowed him to see inside their bodies. He also gave false injections, said Ibra- uh, Ibrahim Karolia, who ran a shop across the road. Any interest Maxwell showed in AIDS uh, in public was benevolent, Clyde New- uh, Claude Newbury, an anti-abortion doctor who knew the mercenary leader, confirmed he had no medical qualifications, but described a committed humanitarian. He was against genocide, and he was trying to discover a cure for HIV, Newbury told filmmakers. A bizarre Johannesburg Sunday Times interview with teenage Simon Ensign Debbie Campbell in 9- August 1989 has a photo of a teenager with a halo of curls, uh, t- taking water pollution measurements and also talking about searching for a cure for HIV and AIDS. But the wholesome image has a sinister undertone. She describes being recruited out of school at 13, and it's hard to imagine, imagine any benign interest an international mercenary group could have in signing up prepubescent girls. Documents collected, apologies for the plane, documents collected by filmmakers appear to show that Maxwell's private views were very di- were very different from his public persona. The papers suggest a ghoulish delight in the advent of an epidemic. In one, uh, in one, he writes, South Africa may well have one man, one vote with a white majority by the year 2000. Religion in its conservative traditional form will return. Abortion on demand, abuse of drugs, and the other excess of 1960s, 70s, and 80s will have no place in the post-AIDS world. The papers read, read like a fever dream of a man who aspired to be South Africa's Joseph Mengele. Uh, though there are detailed, if sometimes garbled, accounts of how he thought HIV, the HIV virus, could be isolated, propagated, and used to target Black Africans. What is less clear is whether he had the expertise or funds to implement the, his nightmarish visions. Jones, the former Simer member, claims he did. Quote, "We were involved in Mozambique spreading the AIDS virus through medical conditions," he said. At least one other Simon member had apparently raised concerns about the group's medical programs. Dagmar Fail uh, was a marine biologist who was recruited by her boyfriend. In 1990, she was, uh, she was murdered outside her home in Johannesburg. Her relatives believe the killing was linked to her work on Simon's aid program. My, sinis- my sister came to me and she said she needed c- to confide in me. Her brother, Carl Fail, uh, told the filmmakers, She sat with me and she thinks they are going to kill her. She said that she said that three or four others were in, in her team had already been murdered, but when asked what team Dagmar said, she couldn't tell me. The topic of AIDS research came up several times quite loosely in conversations. I never put two and two together, quote, unquote, says, uh, Fail says in the film. Instead, Dagmar asked Carl to go uh, with her to church so she could make right with God. Weeks later, she was dead. Jones said he knew Dagmar and claims her death came after a trip to Mozambique, which he describes as a base for the group's medical experimentation. Quote, she was recruited to do medical research, he says. She progressed and she became part of the inner circle for operations. Uh, She went to Mozambique to fulfill her obligations and word got out that she was going to testify. Fail's family spent years trying to find out what happened to her, but police showed little interest, her brother says. During that time, the family say another Simon member gave them papers, believed to be Maxwell's memoir and his account of Simon. 
they later shared these with the filmmakers. Dagmar Fale's uh, uh, mother went, also went to South Africa's Truth and Reconciliation Commission several times. Carl Fale said uh, she asked it to investigate her daughter's killing as part of a wide conspiracy, but turned away. But was turned away. Although the commission first revealed the existence of Simon to the world, the team was also overworked and had to deal with false confessions, and what the family saw as their best hope of uncovering the truth slipped away. They would not listen to her, Carfell says. They would not debate the issue at all. So, I mean, not job, not job aside of, of just um, of just how crazy this dude sounded in terms of what he, in terms of what he wanted to to do, basically. Um, the thing that I think needs to be locked down here, in terms of what we're, in terms of what to talk about here and what to digest from that, is the fact that there were and maybe still are, who knows? I mean, this is isolated in the eighties and nineties, but who's to say this shit doesn't happen now, even on a uh, uh, maybe on a different scale as it pertains to maybe not health but uh, maybe just more monetary uh, uh, on a more monetary perspective but yeah it's um it's kind of it, it kind of moves out this conspiracy theory doesn't it of when you hear people saying that in africa there are people that uh, tried to do the you know try and uh, you know, where did Ebola come from, and stuff like this, and, you know, that that maybe remains to be uncovered if there is anything there, but this cements the fact that there were people in Africa trying to spread AIDS and HIV, and who's to say that they didn't try to spread the others, maybe more successfully, who knows, you know? There are a lot of things to hypothesise here, but the hearsay on this particular article here is just... um. It's just jarring and obviously very confirming at on on one on one end, but <coughs> you can see this also as you know pr- spreading a disease, right? You could think of this from three perspectives, right? You could think about it for in terms of racial gain, which is clearly what was going to happen here. You can think about it from a political sense, which you could possibly link to here but uh, we won't we'll just keep it for racial gain because clearly this dude was working out of a friggin uh working out of a hut that just said doctor on the on the on the top of it so clearly wasn't that that large an operation but you can also look at look at it from a purely monetary money monetary gain monetary gain as well um those are the three sides you can look from it and you can also look from look uh, look to those, especially money from uh, recent acts as well. From you know, from how China is basically. I, I I mean, I'm putting this very loosely, so take this take this statement for what it is. But buying Africa, um, there, there was a the, I think I told this story. Well, I, I've told this story a few times. I don't know if I told it on the podcast, but I while I was in uni, I watched a film, a Chinese film called uh, Wolf Warrior Two. And it's basically a blockbuster-looking film, you know, very Michael Bay vibes, explosions, stupid, stupid stuff going on. Um, but the 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 context towards it was so jarring to me because it's pretty true, and they don't really care that it's true. Um, the the film was set in Africa, and the uh, basically half the cast, most of the cast, was Chinese. 
Um, there were Chinese workers there in Africa, and you know, and the and the, and there were Africans in the film, but they weren't. They were either the enemy or the or just um, you know helpless people. And you know, from a film history perspective, obviously that's just super backwards. But it's kind of true in terms of where Africa is right now for some countries, not all African countries, but, you know, a ma- uh, not a majority, but some, you know, a good amount, a, a, an amount to be scared to think about, for, for it to be scared to, for you to be scared to think uh, think about it. Um, so, yeah, there's there's a, there's also a, another example, there's actually also a TV show I watched recently called um, uh, Deep State. And it's a great show. Uh, if you, if you, uh, you should, you should really watch it. It's actually a really good drama. Um, very uh, uh, geopolitical uh, uh, thing going on, and uh, good storylines actually as well. But yeah, uh, there's the whole thing is about <laughs> a CIA agent uh, with orders from a oil oil dude or, or a warmongering dude uh, to put on these particular acts and you know people under him under this agent are, try, are starting to find out and starting to uncover stuff and there's witnesses and stuff like this and people are dying it's just you know obviously that's fiction but, and obviously Wolf Warrior 2 is also fiction but there are truths you can pull out of it there are there are truths you you can extra- extrapolate from this and um, from all that we get back to this particular article itself and <sighs> It's 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 very it's very depressing to think about, and if you want to also link it to obviously Mugabe as well, and having you know some African leaders not leading and not doing their job as African leaders to help uplift their people, you know, like a government should do. There's also these you know mercenaries trying to enact change <laughs> in a negative way. There was actually a point that my dad gave. Uh, as we were talking about it, like there will see, you know, pharmaceuticals companies as well trying to that maybe they may have a hand on it. We see that in America constantly with their healthcare system. Lord knows what's going on in Africa, or, or, or this, in this case, South Africa. Lord knows what's going on right there. So, you know, there's a lot of people. I, I think it's worth thinking about that there are many people that prof- profit off suffering. You know, there there are people that profit off war. There are people that profit off uh, of uh, of illness and suffering. So, you know, this is kind of just one of those one of those things. But also in this particular case, in this particular case of this particular article, there are people that just do it for um, for racist purposes and uh, and and or political purposes. And of course, in many cases money is always a part of it so we move on to the last topic of today of this episode keep saying today this episode just keep trying to get into the habit uh so yeah music and um so what did I do this week so yesterday last night as of this recording I went to see Common uh, legendary hip hop artist at the O2 Shepherd's Bush Empire. Now, just to first off, um, just three, like two, two small points. Just a one a big up to the support in uh, especially Barney artists uh, who brought out Jordan McKay. 
fucking love Jordan Riquet. Uh, if you haven't heard Jordan Riquet, please listen to his uh, work. It's amazing. Uh, one of the best voices out right now. It feels like makes you feel like you're floating in water. It's great. And uh, yeah, so big up Barney Ice for that. And his uh, performance is very. He was a he was a funny dude. Uh, and the and the beat slap, the beat slap, uh, very very hip hop orientated, uh, and uh, yeah, he's just an overall great personality on stage as well. And also Sha- Sasha Keeble, who uh, did also a great performance. I felt a bit bad for her honestly because um, there were a lot of people in the background, just you know, just background noise. And when you have just you know her and a dude on a guitar. Uh, obviously that could easily be drowned out and uh, I thought that was a bit unfortunate for um, for not just my experience but also just for her because she actually did have you know a great voice and you know great singing and it was a good performance it was just unfortunate there were people in the background just constantly uh, the crowd did a dirty I think uh, in that case but um, yeah past that obviously everyone was there to see Common and uh I mean, oh well, and actually, one more thing. I bowled the positioning. I, I, I wanted to get, I wanted to get, you know, in the middle. I wanted to be in the middle. Um, most of the time, I'm usually on the left or right. Most of the time, on the right. And uh, yeah, so I, I just wanted to be in the middle for this one. But I positioned myself so poorly. Uh, I was behind this dude, this huge black dude, like six four, two hundred and fuck off pounds. Like that dude was hench. Like it, it was a big dude. And uh, it's, it was uh, it was just poor on my part. I was, I was super fortunate. And also, like people that wanted to go past him, he gave like the mean <laughs> dude gave the meanest face. Like he just, he just looked. He just looked over when they like tapped him on the arm or the shoulder. Like he'd look at his shoulder and they just look at them. Like just beam at them just with the meanest mug. I'm like, bro, just let them through, chill. Like they're not gonna, they're all smaller than you. It doesn't matter, mate. <laughs> like, let it go. I, was, I didn't, I didn't see. I've never seen someone so against someone either one touching them at a live event and two trying to get past them at a live event. I've never seen that. The, the 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 contempt in his face was absolutely mad. But yeah, that that was poor position me. I, I I got I got past well not past him, but I got um, you know, aside him uh, uh some at one point which was near near to the end which was good. But yes, past that we were I was I I I was fine with where uh, where I was and obviously the performances themselves. But anyway, let's get into comments. So, you know, if you haven't uh if you haven't listened to the common episode retrospective episode of digging in digits please go uh, look that up um it's uh, i think episode 22 um and yeah so if you want to go listen to that listen to that uh, for my overall thoughts on who common is and just him as an ice because the dude's just the most one of the most consistent ice of the past 30 nearly four years now and uh, it just doesn't stop and one thing i enjoy about Common as an artist is the fact that he wears his love of hip-hop on his sleeve more than most people I, I, I would go I would go my way to say you know there are people that are that look hip-hop you know and you know and, and they do obviously hip-hop music and they um, and they and they use the hip-hop isms that we uh, that we all know and love but none of them do a whole show where they basically, it's, it was basically like an hour and a half love letter to hip hop, um, and I've never seen that. I've never seen that before, and it was so refreshing, and it was really soul filling, to be honest. 
um, there were points where he would do the song and he has so many classics. <laughs> it's stupid how he has dumb about classics. There were classics that he didn't even cover, like, even for me anyway. Cause, and that's the thing, there are so many great common songs out there. Like There were some that, uh, that took me a while just to recognise what they were because I was like... Because I've listened to all his albums, I've listened to all the songs, right? And but there's obviously such a there's so so much of it that when you when he gets into like you know even slightly deep cuts, not even true deep cuts, but just slightly deep cuts. Like uh, uh, he did one from Universal Mind Control, and I was just like, it took me about thirty seconds to realize it was from Universal Mind Control. I'm like, oh yeah, damn. It takes a, it took me a lot. It took me a while for some of those uh, some of those songs to register. Uh, but yeah. Uh, that aside, every every time he finished a song, or nearly every time, he did like a little, uh, just a just like a little interlude. Um, he did like a free. St- he's like his first written work when he was like twelve, and he stopped halfway through because he didn't remember the rest. <laughs> he did his like first freestyle, uh, or first uh, yeah, first freestyle when he supported De La Soul the first time he was in London all those years ago, and yeah, he just took us on a journey. He really did take us on a journey uh, through his, not just his career, but his, you know, relationship, quote-unquote, with hip-hop. And, you know, obviously we can reference I Used to Love Her and Her Love as the two songs that obviously drive that point home. But let's be real, his whole career has been that. Um, his whole career have had have had them songs of just talking about a she. And you, you know, most of the time you just assume that think, uh, he's thinking of a woman, but... Sometimes it can be hip-hop, and um, that's always something that I appreciate in Common's artistry. Um, there was a interesting element of acting, I guess. Uh, there was a, there was a bit where he was like, a, where he was like trying to be in a downstage, and like he sat on a chair, and there was a lamp uh, beside him, and he was like just tapping his head. And the band, oh my god, the band! Oh, the band was so clean. Like drum, drum was clean. Key, there were like several keyboards. Uh, there was a bassist that went that went on. And uh, the, shout! Oh, I really wish I remembered their names. I really did. I really do. But there were so many names. <laughs> um, uh, but the keyboardist at one point he had a solo, and uh, <laughs> he did a he, he basically did a Stevie Wonder's "Isn't She Lovely." And once people clocked on, people started singing it. And that was just one thing I really enjoyed was the crowd uh, around me uh, when they were really when they were into it they were really into it and it was very it was very um, I don't want to say church like but community it was it was very family like um, when everyone just like uh, start some people started singing it's she lovely and then everyone just joined in once they realised what it was and it was just it was just great for that one little bit and that was just a lovely addition that wasn't even involving common and uh, you know that's just a that's just gravy to be honest uh, in terms of those memories but um, yeah i mean uh, i have a i have a i have some videos and pictures on, on my instagram so if you want to go che- uh, check that out at, uh, uh chili charlie 22 then go right ahead but um yeah this uh this is in my top 5 of uh, shows of shows i've been to um it kind of replaces it. It replaces, believe it or not, God's a rap. Um, obviously, I did a special on that. You'd think that'd be top five, but it it it, it just it just it just it uh, it just misses out. Uh, just for just for the sake of intimacy, 
um, I really enjoy intimacy when it comes to a show. And uh, that, f- you know, common, obviously, from the talks about love and uh, and obviously just the hip-hop talk, which is obviously I'm a fan of. Oh, and he breakdanced several times as well, which was stupid. Didn't realise he could do that. Um, it's not, you know, it's not world-beating, but it's, it's, it's breakdancing. Uh, you know what it is. Uh, he, he was on the floor. He was like... He was, he was, <laughs> He was flicking them legs up, so yeah, it was definitely breakdancing, that was crazy. But, um, yeah, it just had everything, it just had everything I wanted from a common show, and more, and then some. Uh, so that's that, Kendrick of the O2, Rap Scene, Ninth Wonder at Jazz Cafe, Master Ace at Jazz Cafe, and also Lil Sims in the Roundhouse, that's my top five right now, and uh, I don't know what's going to top those five, uh, but we'll maybe they might, because I'm actually seeing Lil Sims in a few months, uh, so maybe she'll replace her. Uh, her own <laughs> roundhouse performance, or maybe I'll just put both of us in there. You never know. So uh, it's actually like the fourth time I've seen that. Like I'm seen gonna see her live, so you know. Uh, but anyway, ladies and gentlemen, this has been what's good. Uh, I hope you've enjoyed this episode. Very Africa heavy, which uh, which um, which I've been which I've been wanting to do for a while. Um, I was I always like to keep it wide ranging, as you know. But yes, yeah, so it's, it's it's all good. Um, I'm progressing very well. Uh, I, like I said, IG page uh, for the fifth element is coming very, very soon. Um, I'm just going to do some articles in anticipation of it. I'm just going to do a few reviews and drop those at the same time. So once those are done, then uh, the IG rollout will happen. Trust me on that. And then you can, and then I can put it on here, and I can put it on the description, and then you can follow it, follow it, follow it all, do it anyway. <laughs> Uh, jokes aside, uh, anyway, from the Fifth Element Podcast Network, I've been Charlie Taylor, this has been What's Goods. Intro music was Too Much by Vanilla. Interlude music was Vista by Poldor. You can look up all their music via uh, Bandcamp in the links below. Thanks to Chill Records for the ability to use them. Their Bandcamp link is also in the description below. I hope you have a great week. I'm going to try and do the same. But until the next time, take it easy, ladies and gentlemen. Bye.